So next week is the last Sunday in our annual recurring uh, member. I guess we call it a me- let's call it a membership drive. What the heck? It works for NPR. We have a um, one-year renewable membership approach at Blue Ocean. So you become a member by filling out the membership letter, which is on the back table. It's just an eight and a half by eleven sheet of paper. Or many of you have already signed up through our online link. Thank you. This is available through our weekly updates. Um, and for a couple of Sundays, we wanted to have a couple of our board members talk a little bit about our financial life. So Lisa Ruby did a fabulous job. I watched you on, video, on Vimeo. You, you were great. Your haircut looked very good. And uh, very, you know, you were very composed and compelling, I thought. And I learned stuff. And uh, Steve Gray, there's no way Steve Gray is going to be half as good as Lisa. But give it a try, Steve, who's on our board. Steve Hale from Flint, Michigan. Not now? There we go. All right. So I'm Steve Gray. I'm on the board. I'm also the owner of an 0-6 fantasy football team in the Blue Ocean Fantasy Football League. I tell you, if there's a, that's an argument against full inclusion as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> so anyway, I sure we're going to turn it around. This, I play Emily this week, and so I see she was trying to make me feel sorry for her by saying she bowled a 49, but well, we got no mercy this week. Oh, you're winning the league. I thought it was... Re- all right, all right, all right, all right. Settle down, settle down. Um, so I just want to talk for a second about... Um, why we give, and um, you should know that uh, you know I've I've spent my life in um, a nonprofit legal aid program, and you know basically lived from grant to grant to grant, one year at a time, and have been you know used to having to ask for money uh, from people, and so um, I I always liked it when somebody else would ask for money for me. Um, and I feel like kind of that's, uh, that's why I'm up here, but, um, which I'm happy to do. Uh, so w- one of the things that um, I, I was raised in the evangelical church, and we have this concept in the evangelical church of tithing. And you have, you know, you're under a, it was, it was often called the discipline of tithing. And it sounds kind of painful when it's called the discipline of tithing. And, you know, to some extent it was. Um, we would do it out of obligation. Um, because that we knew that was the right thing to do and that's what we were supposed to do. And you would give 10% of your income. And there was always a debate, should it be 10% of um, you know, your net income, what you take home? Shouldn't it be 10% of gross? Shouldn't God come before the government? Blah, 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 blah. Um, and so, you know, both Joey and I were raised that way and I think we were, um, you know, we were basically faithful to the way that we raised. We were raised and we, we would give you know, regularly. Um, and I'm not, I'm not here to say that, you know, as a result, God bless that or anything like that. I, I do feel like he has. Um, Joey and I have um, both been able to, to work in jobs where we don't make a lot of money and, and um, you know, we've done fine. Um, but um, now I'm in a little bit different situation because I'm involved in a church that I really love and really want to support. You know what I mean? So it's even so much so much funner uh, to give. It's not so much of a discipline. Um, it's, it's, you know, supporting something that I believe in 
and, and want to support. And, and, you know, obviously the reason that I'm here, one of the reasons that I'm here is because our church is, you know, um, a post-evangelical church that is fully inclusive. And that's important to me um, and my family, and that's why we support it. Um, but the other thing about this church that I think, you know, maybe not will mean a lot of people, um, mean a lot to a lot of people, but it means something to me having grown up in, in the evangelical church is that our church is really kind of on the forefront of a new evangelicalism, you know, a, a post-evangelicalism. Um, and we're, um, and we're sort of moving that, um, moving that forward. You hear us exploring different things, um, you know, through the sermons. And um, that's something else that I'm really excited about. I think it's a new move uh, of the Holy Spirit and, and that our church is involved in that. And, and that's why as a board, we encourage, you know, the pastors not to just focus on us here and pay attention to us and, you know, make sure that they're meeting our needs as well but also to be um, looking outward. And um, that's part of what they're doing with writing a book. That's part of what they're doing in participating in this Blue Ocean Church network is they're looking outside of ourselves and what can we do um, you know, to move Christianity into a place where um, we're reaching and meaningful and relevant um, to the next generation that's out there. Um, and so um, that's why I support, and that's why we support, and we make an, an effort to do that. And so I'm sure that you guys won't, won't all have that same reason um, why you support it. There may be other reasons that, that you do, but you're here for a reason. Um, and so we have had a little bit of a drop in our irregular sort of large giving. We're still doing good. Uh, we're still, you know, we're still solid. I think we're going to meet our budget. But there's a need there, um, and so if you're not uh, a regular giver, I would just encourage you to do that. And the way that you can do that is just to very easily go to a2blue.org, our website, and click on a link to sign up for giving. What's it called? Giving. Yeah. So click on the giving link. Um, oh, give. Okay. Uh, yeah. Sign up for that, and you can you can sign up to either get, make a one-time gift or an online. A recurring gift, which I think is the best way to do it personally. But thank you for your time. had a great story she shared with me last week. She has a church in Farmington Hills and, and uh, she was visiting an elderly African-American woman um, who hadn't been able to be in church for, um, you know, I don't know, maybe the whole, the whole year. And so uh, the woman was quite, quite happy to have Julia visiting and was sharing stories about growing up in, in Detroit and going to this Baptist church. And it was like, she was like so happy to be an Episcopalian because the Baptists, they were just, man, it was just intense. And there was a lot, there was a lot going on and it was exhausting. And they came to the Episcopal Church and I was like, oh, we can relax. And how she liked the Episcopal Church. And then she told this story about this pretty prominent church in Detroit, a Baptist church, one of the larger Baptist church. And the preacher would get up and, and with every offering, there'd be like the offering 
And then there'd be the pastoral follow-up to the offering, like, hey, people, we can do better than this. The offering would be counted as it was coming in. And sometimes a deacon, you know, would stand up and say, Mildred, I saw you didn't give uh, this this Sunday. And and, uh, Reverend Franklin, I think it was his name, he would, would, you know, go on and on. And then the organist would be behind him and it would be moving. and, And if things were really bad if things are really going slow he'd say where's Aretha where's Aretha it was his daughter Aretha Franklin and she would come up and sing and she would get the people to give and I thought oh my lord wouldn't that be something you know just like whoa and I would sure wait to do my giving until (laughs) oh my gosh and I thought what a great feedback mechanism you know performers have to learn how to read a crowd you know and that's the crowd reinforces you and the things that are effective in in your performance and to have actually the data of actual money that you could count to to, it's like no wonder she's such a marvelous performer I thought wow that is a that is a great stewardship story so I offer it to you Um, so we're we're in um, a little series and the companion for our membership renewal series is this book by Brene Brown her latest braving the wilderness the quest for true belonging and the courage to stand alone Um, the final chapter is mine to review and the final chapter in a sense sums up the three main concepts in the group it's titled strong back soft front wild heart so Brene Brown's research says that what she calls true belonging which in her understanding is the kind of belonging that's different than just fitting in but it's the belonging where you can bring your whole self into connection with others and you don't have to pretend to be something you're not in order to fit in that's true belonging and she says according to her research it requires two different things and the people who experience uh, true belonging that's satisfying will talk about these two things invariably in the interviews she has with them one is learning to be vulnerable with others that's the soft front presenting you know the soft vulnerable part to others where that's safe to do that's things like expressing your true feelings um, revealing weakness not just strength to other people um, acknowledging your need um, asking for help Um, considering the possibility that you might be wrong uh, empathizing with others learning how to apologize those are the skills of vulnerability and then the other though is learning to stand up for yourself or to stand up for others or for things you believe in even if it means losing your standing or threatening your standing in the group and that's like the strong back like get a spine Um, and these two things they almost seem like opposites and that's that's why this is challenging Um, we can you know obviously think of people that we think oh they're really good at being vulnerable and empathizing and all that and then other people oh they're really good at taking a stand even if it upsets people but the spiritual task and and Brene Brown 
presents this as a kind of spiritual crisis in our nation um, is the spiritual task is to cultivate vulnerability at the same time that we cultivate the courage to stand alone. And Brene Brown says that it, she uses this metaphor of the wilderness and by the wilderness she really means a kind of um, challenging experience that people go through in many different ways but she says that it's these wilderness experiences where we work out this combination of vulnerability and like growing a spine and I, I was thinking about this because I, I felt like one of the most remarkable sermons we had this past year I think it was in April and it was Sharonda and Carla's pastor, the pastor who uh, married them, Dr. Renee Jackson. And she just gave a dynamite message. I think the title was something about uh, worldviews, but she used as her text the uh, story of Jacob at the Jabbok, uh, which is in Genesis chapter 32. And so I just want to rehearse this story because I think it, it gathers together the threads of Brene Brown's research really powerfully. Um, the backdrop of all the important stories in the book of Genesis is the original story about the Eden experience where the man and the woman, the two humans are in the garden, they're walking with God in the cool of the day, they're connected to themselves, they're connected to God, they're connected to the world around them, they're connected to each other, and it says they are both naked and, and not ashamed. Um, the opposite of this picture is the naked dream. So, you know, the naked dream, everybody has the naked dream. I have a vivid memory of like a naked dream nightmare. I think I must have been in junior high in Detroit. I was with some friends. The next thing I know, I'm, I'm naked. I don't know how that happened. I forgot to put my clothes on. I can't believe it. And then I'm like running through my neighborhood in Detroit looking for my, my home and, and I can't find it and I'm trying where's a neighbor's home that I could go to and not be so ashamed or embarrassed to try to get some clothes in the, and it just wakes up and you're in a cold uh, sweat. Um, years later, the same naked dream morphed a little bit and I had this repeatedly. Uh, I'm at church. It's, it's a packed crowd. Uh, I get up to and I look down and either I'm in my underwear or I'm in my pajamas and I'm like how did this happen how could I have forgotten please raise your hand if you had some version of this dream sometime in your life thank you thank you <laughs> I bet some of you had it and just didn't want to raise your hand a lot of people thank God have that crazy dream. Um, nakedness is like the universal sign of um, vulnerability, of feeling exposed. So this is not like easy material. And what Brene Brown says is that the wilderness experiences we go through, that is where we, um, it's like we stop freaking out about our vulnerability and we just embrace it, often because we just can't outrun it. 
So Jacob, the Jacob story, Jacob is so important in the Bible because Jacob is the founder of God's new community, which is called Israel. And Jacob receives his new name, Israel, in a classic wilderness experience. So actually Jacob's story um, uh, traverses uh, several um, chapters in the book of Genesis and his story is bookended by two wilderness uh, experiences. One is right after, remember he, uh, through trickery, he stole the birthright of his uh, older brother, older by a couple minutes, they were twins. Um, uh, his twin brother Esau stole his birthright and Esau was understandably angry and Esau um, was, was, had murderous intent regarding his brother and so Jacob had to flee for his life and his mother, um, you know, uh, no, Rachel, Rebecca, get, get them all mixed up, Rebecca um, told him to go and uh, to go to find himself a wife at uh, Uncle Laban's place which is back where Abraham the grandfather patriarch came from it's quite a distance away in Ur of the Chaldeans and and you know um, Jacob came from a wealthy family his grandpa would, had prospered passed that wealth on to his father Isaac but Jacob had to leave it all behind um, to flee the wrath of Esau uh, again in search of his finding his wife among the people of his uncle Lab. The first night away from home, it's like, you know, the first night of, at college, you know. He's exhausted, he's alone, he's afraid, he's out in the wilderness, he lays his head on a rock as a pillow, and he has a dream. Jesus actually references this dream in John chapter 2 as a dream of a ladder that spans heaven and earth, and the angels or the messengers of God are ascending and descending the ladder. This is like a LSD type awesome wonderful dream and at the top of the ladder is the Lord God and he speaks to Jacob and says I will be with you wherever you go you will prosper I'll you bring you back to the land of the promise he extends the promise of Abraham that was extended to Isaac his father is now extended to him Jacob and that's his first understanding that the wilderness is where you can begin to embrace ability not just run away from it or try to cover it up with other things because when he's most vulnerable he has this amazing God dream experience and it happens in the wilderness so he goes on to his Uncle Laban's area, falls in love with his cousin Rachel, that was legal in this particular state. Uh, he, he works for seven uh, years for Laban to gain Rachel's hand. The women are owned by the men, you know, it sucks. You know, the, the men are like dealing the women, like trading them like library, you know, uh, baseball cards or something. On his wedding night, Laban switches out Rachel for Leah, who I think is maybe the older sister. And after plying the groom with uh, plenty of wine, Jacob consummates the wedding night in the wedding tent, which was kind of like the wedding itself, only he's with Leah, not with Rachel. He wakes up in the morning hungover, and Laban says, oh, well, it looks like you married 
marry Leah instead of Rachel seven more years if you want to marry Rachel so he's getting a taste of his own medicine isn't he from uh, from Laban his uncle is this this use of trickery to manipulate and make things happen that are self-serving and that actually the word Jacob his name means heel grasper because he was born a twin and his twin uh, brother Esau came out first and and it's like Jacob was grasping his heel he wanted to pull him back in and come out first but it didn't work so um, this is a sign of rivalry in that relationship Jacob uh, turns out prospering in Laban land um, so much so that he becomes a threat to his uncle even and he has to pack up his two wives and the kids and the herds and return home and he's like a patriarch in his own right now and but home is where his brother Esau is waiting so the dramatic encounter happens at the river Jabbok which rhymes with Jacob it's just in, inverted um, consonants there and it's just beyond the river Jabbok is just beyond where um, Esau lives and Esau now is like a patriarch in his own right he is married he has lots of children he has lots of herd he's a force to contend with in that region in his own right and Jacob at the Jabbok in the wilderness is like it's the moment of truth he's he's like forced to come home he's got nowhere else to run he's petrified First, he sends um, some of his servants ahead to flatter Esau. Sends the servants ahead. And they call him Lord. They bow down to him. And the servants return to Jacob and say, Esau is on his way with 400 of his men. This is like Egads. It's not working. Um, then for the first time in the book of Genesis, this remember is chapter 32, someone's prayer is recorded. For the first time, we have the words of someone who speaks to God in, in a prayer. And um, I won't read the prayer, but it's a vulnerable prayer. It's the prayer of a man who is running out of, out of his own tricks. Uh, and then after the prayer, it's like he uses his last trick, which is he sends gifts to Esau with messengers to, you know, mollify Esau and to show Esau that he's a powerful man and he can, like, generate a lot of gifts. And it's, it's kind of like a little, you know, it's a little Middle Eastern nego indirect negotiation going on through the servants. But he has no idea if the gifts have been received or not. And night falls. And he sends his two wives and his kids, all but Di Di Dinah. He doesn't send her out. All but one he sends across the river to safety. And then he spends the night um, at the banks of the river. Uh, it says, the text says, he was alone. And sleep escapes him, as it does sometimes. And he, we imagine, he fusses. Um, Jacob's family line in Genesis uh, it has belonging issues. They have like big time belonging issues. They haven't figured out uh, like how to get along as a family. Uh, they particularly don't have a good track record in resolving intense sibling rivalries. 
So siblings, you know, especially in the ancient world, are natural rivals for the parents' approval. There's that firstborn thing. There's the inheritance thing. They would divide up the inheritance differently depending on your standing in the family. But if the human family is going to survive long term, uh, the rivals have to work it out somehow. And so, you know, for Jacob, Cain and Abel, that's in his family line. They're the first rivals. Oh, that, that rivalry gets worked out great, you know, through murder. No more rivalry. And then Jacob's father, Isaac, and his brother Ishmael are rivals. And that rivalry, how does that end? That ends with the expulsion of Ishmael. And if we think, oh, these are just old stories in the Bible, well, you know, Jews and Christians trace their lineage to Abraham through Isaac, and Muslims trace their lineage to Abraham through Ishmael. So this is not without, like, contemporary significance that is getting played out in the world stage uh, as we speak. So such are the nighttime musings of Jacob anticipating his reunion with Esau. Then... Jacob has this strange wilderness um, encounter, a kind of wrestling match. It's in Genesis chapter 32. Um, it's about 10 verses. Oh, Genesis would be at the very front of the book, right? Yeah. I knew it would come to me. Let me just read this to you. Um, Let me just uh, offer myself a little bit of assistance as I read this to you with, uh, ah, that's so much better. Jacob wrestles with God. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two maidservants, and his 11 sons and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions so Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, that is Jacob, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip, so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go, for it is daybreak. And here's where you love to have Hebrew scholars. Uh, Andy Deeb is, uh, you know, at uh, San Francisco. I saw Andy's parents here. And uh, he's teaching, like he's doing a teaching thing. So he's teaching Hebrew and uh, the Old Testament. And when I was doing my study on this, one, one possibility for grabbing the hip is that it's actually the, 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 the hollow of the thigh may be a, a euphemism for the family jewels. And so this, and this may be why this is such a, a ouch moment here, but that's, that's just do with that as you will. For Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. You know, wow. The man saw that he could not overpower me. Touched the sack of Jacob's head. Then the man said, let me go for it is daybreak. So they're wrestling. You know, the thing about wrestling, Adam is a wrestling coach Wrestling is like the oldest um, con human contest. It seems to be almost universal. And there's no knockout in, in wrestling. 
There's no like, the, the victor isn't that clear. It's like it's a, finally the one, one has to give up and yield, but they're embracing and, and they're probably naked when they're wrestling as in the ancient wrestling matches. And so this is all happening in cover of night. Jacob replies, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. So he's confessing who he really is, Jacob. He's the heel grasper. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. That's at the root of the meaning of Israel. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, It is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. So we're supposed to picture him as silhouetted, you know, with the sun rising in the background, and he's limping. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. So, who is this mysterious figure is the, is the question all of the rabbis would spend their you know, lives debating with one another. And, and Renee Jackson did a great job of bringing this out and brought some perspectives that I'd never heard before that was so helpful. And, you know, some say, well, it's God. He's wrestling with God. But it's, he's not called God. And, and Jacob wrestles God in this understanding to a draw. And, and then he extracts a blessing in the end. And maybe it's just like Moses asked God what his name is. And, the, you know, God doesn't want to give him his name. And it gives a mysterious name. I am who I am. It's not really a name. And this mystery figure refuses. Maybe it's, maybe it's God he's wrestling with. But some say, and the rabbis would say, the figure is Jacob's own double. So Jacob is wrestling with himself or his false self, we would say in modern, you know, psychological terms, is wrestling with his true self. And like, well, no wonder it's a draw. Um, and no wonder his double response to the question, what's your name, as if it's an absurd name that you ask, the, you know, the reflection in the mirror. Some say the figure is Esau's doppelganger. You know, like the, app the apparition representation of Esau. And so that's who J Jacob is wrestling with. And that kind of fits because in the end, Jacob secures Esau's blessing, which actually happens the next day when Esau arrives. They end up embracing. Nobody dies. They exchange email addresses. They become Facebook friends. And, you know, they're not buddy-buddy. They do separate pretty quickly, but they've, they've got this, this connection, superficial connection. It could be that Jacob never figures out he was wrestling with uh, his double, his double, Esau's doppelganger, God. Uh, maybe it was all three at the same time. I mean, have, have you ever had one of those sessions, 
you know, maybe you're yelling in the car or, or you're stomping around your apartment or what you, you've run out of options, your normal coping mechanisms aren't cutting it, and you just, you're going to have it out with the universe, you know. You're going to have it out with God or you're going to, maybe you're having it out with yourself or maybe if your therapist was there, they'd say you're having it out with your rival, your, your ex-spouse or your long dead father, the, whatever. You can't tell. But, but what's happening to you in these kinds of experience often is you're actually, you're not out, trying to outrun your vulnerability. You're just facing it, embracing it. And in some way, you're growing a spine at the very same time. So it turns out that Jacob comes out of this encounter uh, with an enduring limp. It's not a limp that he overcomes. It's like a limp that is with him for the rest of his life. And Brene Brown, again, based on her, her many interviews with people going through these experiences, says, um, the cost of true belonging is carrying the pain of the wilderness with us wherever we go. That in the wilderness we have experiences and they're, and they're representational or they're playing out some kind of deep pain in our lives. And it's not like it gets resolved, but we're, we carry that pain with us for the rest of our lives. And that is signified in Jacob's uh, limp. I just, the Bible through stories at like deep things that you can't just reduce to a formula. You know, uh, my daughter Grace lost her mom at age 19. I was with my sister this past week in New York City and my sister told Grace, um, she said, losing a parent is the first loss you don't ever get over. The first loss you don't ever get over. And, and Grace like totally understood that and that was like a connection with, uh, with her aunt, with my sister. What I don't think Grace probably realized um, is that my sister, her aunt, as a young, young woman, had gone through like a series of tough losses. Her, her first serious boyfriend at the University of Michigan, she followed him out to New York City where he was from. And, in, you know, he went to grad school and it's always in psychology. And in, in like a manic episode, he breaks up with her. He marries another grad student in psychology. And within two months, she's committed suicide. And he's back trying to get back with my sister <laughs> and and then she falls in love with this sweet wonderful man and just before they're about to get uh, engaged he gets leukemia age I don't know 30 he died shortly after that then you know a few years later she lost her mom you know we all develop in our own ways enduring limbs and these happen in the wilderness experiences of life and and it was like that shared vulnerability that walking with a limp became a bond between my daughter and her aunt and in the Jacob story Jacob doesn't become Israel which means the founder of a new community until he walks with a limp and the idea is that this new community, this new way of walking with others and walking with God is not about, it's not like the Facebook way. It's not presenting the good face. It's about being vulnerable with others, walking with a limp. 
James Collins, who's done a lot of research on various companies that transition from good companies to great companies. Great meaning employees love to wa uh, work with them. Um, they're they're long lasting. They're not just in it for short term. You know, Wall Street gain. Uh, these companies are led by CEOs who are not like the, you know, badass CEO like Jack Welch and, you know, cut 10% every year or just make the hard decisions that inflates the, the uh, stock price and, and, you know, make it a bucket load of money. But these um, companies that make this transition from good to great, they have suffered some significant personal tragedy in their lives and they lead with a limp is the language that James Collins used and they're able to stand for their convictions they're able to resist groupthink in their in their small world and they're able to be vulnerable with other people and people want to follow these leaders because they inspire trust not fear so you know it's like the same stuff is getting worked out in all these different realms. The, the last chapter, if you haven't gotten the book, um, the, kind of the last plug, but the last chapter is really, it's really a sweet chapter uh, to read um, because it, it features the story of um, a woman named uh, Jen Hatmaker, who's a, uh, was a Christian author, writer, blogger, who came out as an ally for marriage equality, and she lost a lot of friends she, her, in, her, in her moderate conservative uh, faith world, as it's described. Um, she paid a professional price, and um, she has this whole email where she talks about um, the wilderness as like, when you first get out there, it's super scary, and it's lonely, but if you press in, if you keep walking through the wilderness, eventually you find others out there. And the wilderness isn't such a bleak place, and there are like hidden resources in the wilderness, and there are really interesting people out in the wilderness. And there's like a bond that you forge with these people often when they're strangers, and it, and it takes a while um, out in the wilderness. It's been her experience. You know, the, the limp for many who have been through this kind of a wilderness experience is enduring the pain of losing dear friends. Enduring the pain of losing dear friends when you're in the wilderness is like one of the most common um, uh, content experiences of the, uh, of the walking with a limp metaphor. Um, it's like an enduring wound that people carry with them. Um, and I just found that really comforting, that that, um, that loss is, um, that, that kind of a limp is uh, nothing to be ashamed of. You know, there's, um, there's something in that that God works to and lands on and works through for good. And in the case of Jacob, it's actually essential for founding a new way of doing community that is born in this wilderness. So um, we're going to finish now. And, and instead of doing a meditation I thought I'd let the communion re would really serve as our meditation because um, 
I mean, think about it. Like we're we're like um, our hero or our figure, our inspirational center is Jesus, but he's a different kind of hero. He's not like a you know Atlas kind of hero. And the thing we lift up about him, and we do it every week in the communion, is we lift up his enduring wounds. That this is, a, this is a manifestation of God, this is a representation of God who carries within himself, like eternally, these, these long-standing wounds. And when we remember him, you know, we're not, we're not like, oh, he's strong, our God is better than your God, and he's awesome, and we've got the best God on the, in the neighborhood. It's we're, we're lifting him up in his vulnerability. And that's what, you know, the breaking of the bread, the pouring of the cup represents those enduring word, wounds. That this is like a constant reminder to us that these wounds are not, um, we're not to be ashamed of. This is somehow a key to our being together and to our walking in this new way with God. Amen.